0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Michael Barone is a graduate of Cranbrook, a school near Detroit, Michigan. He's a graduate of Harvard College and the Yale Law School. But he is not primarily known for the practice of law. Rather, he is primarily known for American politics, of which he is the grand repository of information and a fascinating analyst. He's the author of many books. Most importantly, he is the longtime co-author of the Almanac of American Politics that began in the pivotal year in the United States of 1972. He is currently a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, And he is the author of many books, including the book we will discuss today, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. Many Americans know him from Fox News. He also appears in many other media outlets. And he has, of course, written for The Washington Post and National Review, The Federalist Society, Real Clear Politics. He is currently the senior political analyst for The Washington Examiner. I'm looking forward to this conversation with Michael Barone. Over 15 years ago, I wrote an article in which I said of Michael Barone that when it comes to the data of American politics, if Michael Barone does not know it, it probably cannot be known. Mr. Barone, you have an expertise when it comes to American politics that I think is frankly unrivaled, but you are also interested in the larger patterns of American political and social history. So how does that come together in your mind?
1: Well, I... You know, one of the things that uh, that fascinates me is that uh, it has since I was a child was how we uh, we have all the we have this steady uh, calendar of elections going back now to 1789. Every four years we elect a president. Every two years we elect a Congress. uh, Actually, it gets a little more complicated than that in the 19th century because they voted in different months. But um, I I sort of like the regularity of it. And as I've grown older and as I've tried to write about it, learn more and live my life, one of the things that I've noticed is that within that regularity, there can be an awful lot of change, an awful lot of vivid emotions and strong feelings, uh, an awful lot of... uh, very, uh, inspiring leadership and, uh, also a certain amount of demagoguery. So the, um, and they, they don't, these things don't necessarily come at regular intervals. So that's what I'm, uh, uh that's what I've been trying to understand, appreciate, and perhaps I hope, um, explain and, uh, and help other people understand.
0: Well, you've been doing that for a long time. Uh, I was uh, 13 years old when the first edition of the Almanac of American Politics came out, and I can't claim to have looked at it or read it when I was 13. But by the time the second edition of the Almanac of American Politics came out, uh, I was already hooked and have been ever since. Uh, There's one sense that uh, looking at uh, the America Congressional District by Congressional District you can get bogged down in the uh in in the machinery of what it takes to get elected to iowa's third district but i appreciate the fact that in your most recent book and by the way i find that endlessly fascinating but the bigger question is what does all this mean you've written a new book and uh it has an intriguing title how america's political parties change and how they don't now a title like that means you've got a point to make
1: well i've got a point to make and i uh you know, I started writing the first edition of this Almanac of American Politics, which has descriptions of every poli- every state, all 435 congressional districts, came out in November 1971, and I basically uh, co-author wrote all the text, and uh, I did that for about, read about all that text, or edited it for about 40 years, I don't do as much anymore, but, you know, I saw a certain amount of change in our political system. But one of the things that fascinates me and one of the things that I think most Americans don't fully appreciate is that uh, we have how old our political parties are. Uh, You can find plenty of people on the street who will say bad things about the Republicans or bad things about the Democrats, bad things about both political parties. Um, But they've been around for an awfully long time. Uh, The Democratic Party formed by my reckoning, 1832, the oldest political party in the world, the Republican Party formed in 1854, uh, third oldest political party in the world. Um, they were both formed to address initial issues, uh, the Democrats to uh, Defeat rechartering of the Second Bank of the United States and elect Andrew, reelect Andrew Jackson, the Republicans, uh, to stop slavery in the territories. And within a dozen years, both parties were successful in those original goals. But they have persisted ever since. So I thought there's kind of an interesting story here. I think why have they persisted so long, and why, despite What I've seen during my writing lifetime of uh, predictions that one party or the other was going to go out of business would be supplanted, would be had to step aside, uh, that they continue uh, to uh, structure our American politics.
0: Well, indeed they do. And in one sense, there's been a great reversal in questions uh, such as uh, at least the impression of Americans when it comes to uh, civil rights issues and and, uh, other other developments, uh, even some uh, economic issues, that those are generalizations that are unfair. But nonetheless, the the fact is that the civil rights legislation in the 1960s was really made possible by uh, Northern Republicans uh, voting against uh, Southern Democrats, uh, especially in the, uh, in, in the Congress. But you point out that there's a continuity. And uh, early in your book, you point to the fact that the Republican Party has always been formed around a core of people who consider themselves by themselves. And uh, and others to be typical Americans, although they were never by themselves a majority. And then you, you speak of the Democratic Party has always been a combination, a coalition of people who are not thought of by themselves or others as typical Americans, but who often together form a majority. Well, that was then and it is now.
1: Well, that was then and that is now. And we're seeing uh, you've summarized uh, my descriptions very, very accurately. And um We're seeing this play out uh, in our presidential primaries. Um, You know, the the Republican uh, voters seem to be almost entirely in line with President Trump. And when you go back in history, Republican voters have tended to support Republican presidents. Uh, The one exception is when a former Republican president ran against an incumbent Republican president in 1912. But Republicans have stayed faithful to their presidents. That core group has stuck with a president once he's in office, even one like President Trump, who had a lot of opposition within the party in 2016 when he was running for the nomination. Uh, The Democratic Party split up into core groups so you have uh, uh, you know you have uh, people representing you know how are black voters in South Carolina going to vote in that South Carolina primary that's coming later this month Um, you know we didn't have very many bi voters in Iowa and New Hampshire because not many black people living there Uh, and so that's a question you have the question of cultural liberals and you have um, you know, a um, sort of fight between in the debate last night between a Senator Amy Klobuchar, who would like to be the second consecutive woman to be nominated for president by the Democratic Party, uh, and Pete Buttigieg, who would be the first gay candidate endorsed by a uh, openly gay candidate endorsed uh, nominated by uh, our, one of our two major political parties if he wins his quest for the Democratic nomination. They sure don't like each other um, for reasons that um, not just the type of person they represent, but also just apparently the personal chemistry. Uh, you've got Michael Bloomberg from New York City, um, a billionaire with an amazing amount of money. You have Bernie Sanders, a socialist. Um, the Democratic Party is a mixed bag. And, you know, one of the questions that seems to be raised by the course of these primaries is, um, will they all uh, get together and unite uh, after this convention, or will it be more like, uh, you know, 1968, 1972, when the disparate wings of the Democratic Party were not able to come together and win an
0: election victory? Well, you can even just go back to 2016, when uh, perhaps disillusioned or angry Bernie Sanders supporters didn't turn out in adequate numbers uh, to elect Hillary Clinton, at least in the Electoral College. So it, it's it's recent
1: Well, if you look at where uh, Hillary Clinton fell short of where other recent Democratic nominees have run, not only winning candidates like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, but losing candidates like um, John Kerry and Al Gore, she ran way behind in the outstate Midwest, in the Midwestern states, industrial states, Pennsylvania, Florida, outside the major metro areas, the million-plus metro areas. Those areas were all just about all carried by Bernie Sanders in the primaries right. uh, against Hillary Clinton. And uh, so some of the voters there that preferred Bernie Sanders to her evidently didn't vote for her in the general election.
0: Now, uh, in one sense, and I, I think back uh, to when I was uh, I, I was a volunteer in the Reagan campaign as a 16-year-old in 1976, and uh, then I worked in the Ford campaign, Uh uh, I, I am a Southern Baptist. I'm president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Jimmy Carter was the Southern Baptist running for president, but but I didn't support him.
1: Born-again Christian.
0: Yes, absolutely. Born-again Christian. I injected that term largely into the national discourse. But uh, the reason I raised 1976 was that uh, when, once Carter won, I began uh, seeing all of these arguments that uh, the Democrats now had a majority that was unassailable. The Democratic Party was, once again, the the permanent majority party, controlling the House, the Senate, uh, most of the governorships, and, uh, of course, the presidency. And and I, I, I was very interested, as you began your book, you don't say this, but it's in your analysis, and that is that the Democrats continually are certain that they can't lose because there are so many people who aren't Republicans. But as it turns out, they they do repeatedly lose, especially in presidential elections, because the Democrats, just as you pointed out, are such a disparate collection that if any part of that uh, of that collection gets uh, disillusioned or unmotivated, you've got a Republican president.
1: Well, there there yeah, that is one of the problems in holding together a party that. Um... You know, in 1924, at its national convention, took 103 ballots before they could select a presidential candidate. Uh, That was uh, a classic example of a divided Democratic Party. They had a resolution at that convention uh, to condemn the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, which was mainly an anti-Catholic outfit in the 1920s, also anti-Black. That resolution sailed by something like four votes out of 2,000 delegate votes, some very large number. Um, That illustrates what a huge cultural split there was in the Democratic Party. You know, on the other hand, you had Jimmy Carter um, still carrying the South, Uh, In his 1976 run for president, and you had memories of Lyndon Johnson being reelected or elected to a full term in 1964 with 61 percent of the vote. So uh, Democrats kind of assumed that they were the majority. But um, that 76 election, I think, was interesting in one way, because. The the map of the states carried is almost uh, direct opposite of what we've seen in more recent elections. Uh, And one of the reasons was that both parties nominated, happened to nominate candidates that came from their historic heartlands, but where their support was receding. Jimmy Carter from South Georgia, from the Deep South, which had been heavily Democratic for many years, but has became less so. Um, indeed, in 1980, one of the reasons when he did not carry the South anymore. Uh, and uh, the uh, Gerald Ford from outstate Michigan, part of that area of the New England diaspora, those New England yeah. reformers who formed the Republican Party in the 1850s, in um, that area was going against the uh, Republican Party in part because of Watergate honesty issues and war and peace issues and so forth. So, um, you know, there's various currents and uh, there's this other little thing that comes along called events uh, yeah. that uh, that happen and in uh, foreign policy events, which no president can fully control. Uh, you had Jimmy Carter dealing with the Iran hostage crisis. That was certainly something that weakened him going into the 1980 election. Uh, And you had, um, you know, when I was growing up, we heard about how the Democratic Party had a natural majority based on, you know, five straight presidential wins from 1932 to 48. Uh, But when you look at those 1940 and 44, and I would argue also 1948 wins by the Democratic Party, an important part of their victory, maybe a key part, were foreign policy issues. President Roosevelt won a third term in large part because the world was in crisis. Hitler and Stalin were allies. They were in command of most of the territory of Eurasia. Um, This was an Orwellian moment, and Roosevelt was a proven leader. Uh, And uh, he might have lost the election if it was decided on domestic issues, but it was decided, I would argue, on foreign policy issues, and he won Uh, third term. The only time a president in history has ever done that or ever will. So it's, uh, you know, those things can be, um, every time people are seeking reasons why one party must uh, always go on to win and the other party disappears, somehow the other party manages to rebound, uh, to figure out a new way to win, to take advantage of an emerging issue or crisis. And so that's, uh, That, you know, these parties suffered huge losses, the Republicans in 1932, the Democrats in 1920, utter political disasters, much worse than anything they've encountered in our lifetime. They
0: both bounce back. Uh, I think I remember many, many years ago reading in your book, Our Country, the Shaping of America from Roosevelt to Reagan. I think I remember you mentioned the 1924 Democratic National Convention. I think I remember that you said that William Howard Taft was an observer at that meeting.
1: Yeah, I basically, I, well, I started off at that 1924, the 1920s, because um, this was, uh, my, the book was kind of a political narrative, 1930 to 1988, yeah. and uh, published in 1990. And I wanted to see an America political system operating when you didn't know for the eyes of people that didn't know there was going to be the Depression was 1930s was going to change political alignments uh, as uh, stunningly as it did. And so my two characters were William Howard Taft, the former president who in the 1920s, was chief justice and who died in, in March 1930. Uh, at a time when nobody knew that the stock market crash of a few months before was going to lead to a very major right. economic downturn. And Charles F. Murphy, who was the uh, head from 1902 to its death in 1924 of Tammany Hall in New York, who was a um, very uh, smart uh, political entrepreneur and uh, Um, and who once again did not know that there was a depression coming, but who pioneered a new kind of democratic politics in what was then the largest state in the country and one that tended to vote roughly around the national average. So, um, yeah, those characters, uh, they didn't know there was a depression coming, and they didn't know that many analysts would say the depression will make the Democratic Party the majority forever. Uh, which it didn't do, but it certainly they certainly did win some elections um, for uh, for some period of time.
0: There are just some pictures, though. I wish I could see. I wish I could see a press photograph, hopefully candid, not posed, of the uh, former president of the United States, a Republican and a Republican-appointed Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, sitting as an observer. Uh, in a large chair, no doubt, of the uh, Democratic National Convention uh, there in 1924. Uh, just just one of those pictures I wish I could have seen, uh, because you, you can look back and say, okay, this is a big turning point in American history, not just that election or convention, but as you point out, that era. In, in that book, and uh, I remember reading it when it came out in 1990, and uh, I remember that early on in that book, you make the point that uh, – the, the basic dividing lines in America, even the partisan dividing lines, are are more cultural than economic. And uh, my first thought is, well, you know, th- that that's interesting when compared to other nations. I'd like to talk about that in just a moment, such as Britain. But uh, I, I think your thesis was right then. And there's a sense in which I think your newest book is just picking up the very same thesis, that the basic dividing lines are cultural before they are economic.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Michigan in the 1950s when uh, politics really was kind of an economic thing. You, you know, you, UAW was the Democratic Party. The right. uh, auto company management was the Republican Party and so forth. Uh, you assumed anybody driving a Cadillac would vote Republican, et cetera. Um, those days are gone. And I, it, as I looked around American history, and wrote about it, it seemed to me, yeah, uh we might often we, you know politics more often splits us along cultural lines than along economic lines although economic issues are important and have been pivotal i mean the civil war was not fought over the tariff or some economic issue it was fought over a cultural issue right. it was human slavery right or wrong and um that was uh, that was a, a cultural issue one of the things i looked at in this book is that the two um there two political parties that Republicans centered around a core constituency of supposedly typical Americans. The democratic party is a coalition of people who see themselves as members of out groups. Um, that is, uh, that gives appropriate choices to a very large majority of people in a country that has always been culturally diverse. You know, we hear a lot of these academics, um, Quota Meister says, Oh, we're suddenly a diverse country. We used to all just all be white bread people. Uh, no, not so. We've always been a culturally diverse country, and the founders recognized that in particular with respect to religion. I mean, most uh, countries in Europe, most countries in the rest of the world had uh, sort of one uh, religion uh, that you were pretty much supposed to. Uh, follow and adhere to and so forth, uh, the British North American colonies you know, were founded by Calvinist Quakers, Catholics, uh, Anglicans. Um, there were Jews settling there. We were a multicultural country from the very founding of the Republic and the founding of the seaboard colonies. And uh, the founders recognized this when they said, Congress um, will have religious freedom in the First Amendment, A free exercise thereof. And we will, Congress shall make no law regarding an establishment of religion. States could have established religions. Some of them continued theirs until the 19th century, or they could abolish them. We wouldn't have a federal established religion because that wasn't going to work in a country with so many different religious traditions. Freedom, and tolerance
0: were going to work.
1: And that was a good insight then, and I think it's an insight that uh, we do well to reflect on now.
0: Yeah, that's uh, uh, that brings to mind, at least in my mind, the uh, the work Albion Seed by David Hackett Fisher uh, about the, the separate immigrations uh, from the United Kingdom uh, to the United States and, and settling in different regions, how that became culturally determinative uh, of, uh, I should say, not only what those regions became then, but th- those, those differences endure now.
1: Well, you see them now. I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, the new, the new England states now that the, the, the Calvinists who settled that uh, the Puritans as they were called were a group that was highly moralistic, but also sort of intolerant of differences from their moral code, and the way they ran their colonies. And, um, uh, You see that a lot in uh, New England liberals today, don't you? Absolutely. They've got various moralisms that may very well include recycling your trash, Um, but um, they don't have. um, They they, they verge at the risk of intolerance of those who don't share their views, and that's been a motif that we've seen, you know, going back 400 years now
0: and it's not an accident that the most uh military friendly let's just say uh the most uh aggressive portion of the United States has been uh, uh south of the Appalachians and uh, and and basically uh, uh the south and and that was true when uh when you know Dixiecrat uh Democrats uh, were the majority in in the Congress and it's true now uh when uh, most of those congressional seats are held by Republicans
1: well, that's right. I mean one of the things uh that uh you know you uh you, you get in American history is that the the South, which of course white Southerners secede and we get the Civil War, but the military tradition is very strong there in that Jacksonian tradition of people in the hill country uh and the Appalachian chain contain people who fought both for the confederacy and for the union um and uh they uh they're, you know, the David Hackett Fisher uh, kind of Albi, uh, the, the the Jacksonian thing. Andrew Jackson, who was parents emigrated sure. from Northern Ireland, two two day, two years before he was born, um, basically, you know, um, you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone, but if you threaten my family or my country, I'll kill you, uh, and that has been a response that uh, that continues to echo throughout our history. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, the novelist Philip Roth, interestingly, who was so perceptive about people from his own cultural milieu in New York and so forth, uh, got that wrong in his novel about World War II, in which he was imagining that somehow there would be a, you know, fascist takeover in the United States. Um, he has the South, uh, is the place where the, the, the Nazi movement would be strongest. Uh-uh. When we were attacked in 1941, it was the South that rallied most, and in the period before that, if you look at public opinion surveys, uh, the South was most supportive of aiding Britain in the war, uh, of, uh, you know, uh, quarantining oil from Japan and so forth, and of taking a uh, forward-looking response to military aggression and dictatorship overseas.
0: You can look at American politics from many different dimensions, and one of the ways of thinking about it is that you can take the macro picture as if you're looking at the national landscape through a telescope, or you can take the micro perspective, and basically, there are those who can look at American politics as if looking through a microscope. Rare are those who can do both. Michael Barone is one of those very rare individuals. Now, in uh, your newest book, you, you talk about how parties change and how they don't. And and let's just stipulate something up front and, and perhaps clarify it. The United States is a two-party system. Yeah, I think you could argue that uh, from the, the certainly the beginning of the 19th century, it was a two-party system, just uh, two different parties. And uh, given the shape of the Electoral College, it's likely to be permanently a two-party system. And uh, so it it really is just a question of which those two parties are going to be. And ever since the Civil War, we've pretty much known who those parties were.
1: Well, that's right. We have uh, it's been the Democratic and the Republican Party. You had the emergence of a progressive party in 1912 who nominated former president Theodore Roosevelt, highly popular, uh, who had been the record winning popular vote getter up to that point in our history. Ran candidates in most non Southern congressional districts in 1912 and again in 1914. Yet by 1916 and 1918, it was gone. Uh, the institutional forces of the single member district and the Electoral College work against it, but I think there's something more fundamental. I think the two political parties that have this different, each its own separate uh, character, personality, DNA, as I call it has fulfilled the needs for the vast majority of voters um, as a form of expressing their views and of what should be done and of giving them um, what they consider to be uh, suitable alternatives at least one of which is acceptable um, and that that has had a continuing force and is likely certainly to have a continuing force when you you know you 've been dealing with one hundred and eighty eight and a hundred and sixty um, Six-year-old parties, um, maybe there's something uh, lasting about them uh, that uh, appears even after they suffer some political setbacks.
0: Now, the uh, kind of Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Uh, theory of American history, the vital center, and and uh, and all that, basically coming from the uh, the the left or the center-left. It made the argument that uh, there is this great center in American politics that that created what they they at least refer to as a bipartisan consensus uh, from say 1950 to uh, to 1960 64 somewhere there. But uh, you you point out the fact that it never was exactly that. But it is also true that if you fast forward to 2020, the two political parties are now sorted out. Uh, it, to use your language, the Republicans sloughed off the liberals and the Democrats sloughed off the conservatives. So so how did that happen and why?
1: Well, it happened in various stages, but basically, um, you know, the parties attract their constituencies over the years, um, and some of them stay with the party for a long time because they things that impel them to be part of that party are very fundamental and important to them others change and of course the parties themselves um through some combination of calculation and conviction respond to you know trends in the society coming uh, respond to important uh, events by trying to you know gain among voters that they haven't been winning over before and and win new voters and hold on to their current voters. Um, and so, you know, you have the Demo- who were the conservatives in the democratic party, at least conservatives on civil rights and on many economic issues in the period when Arthur Schlesinger was starting his, uh, his, his uh, notable career as an historian circa 1950 to which you refer. Um, well, they were the, they were the, why were they, why were these southerners Democrats? well, it was the Civil War. You know, why was Georgia the number two state for John F. Kennedy in 1960? There weren't many Catholics voting in Georgia. There weren't many, many black people voting in Georgia at that point. Um, but it was the number two state for John F. Kennedy. Why? You know, there were no industrial unions there. Well, Sherman had marched through only 96 years before, and they were still mad about it.
0: They still are uh, mad about
1: uh, it. They still are mad about it. So,
0: I mean, politically, this, well, that that's still a factor.
1: Enduring and, and searing political event. I mean, my father asked his grandfather, who was from West Virginia, why he was voting for Dewey in 1944, and his grandfather said, That's easy. He said, The Confederates burned a barn 80 some years before. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that remained for a long time, and eventually. Um, you know, when the, the civil rights issue was resolved legislatively, when the South accepted that legislation, uh, white Southerners who had resisted violently sometimes, uh, integration uh, accepted it. And when you moved on to other issues, whether it was economic issues of free enterprise, whether it was foreign policy issues, in which I've explained that uh, the the South was always the more inclined to support military action uh, and that favored the Republicans after the mid 1960s, it had favored the Democrats a half century before, um, a whole cat, uh, catalog of issues. The, uh, the, the, um, uh, the white Southerners were more sympathetic to Republicans than Democrats, and they have been, uh, in general voting that way, uh, ever since, uh, in, um, you know, uh, reputing any Jimmy Carter in significant numbers after one term and then uh, becoming a key block on the on the Republican side, uh, the liberal Republicans, why were they Republicans if they backed a lot of new deal type uh, spending measures and so forth um, and invention as foreign policy? Well, they were Republicans because they didn't like the big city uh, bosses uh, political, democratic political bosses who they thought were corrupt, they didn't like what they thought were violent corrupt labor unions, they didn't like uh, Southern segregationists. These were three major elements of the Democratic Party that they didn't like. Well, what happens? Those elements basically go away. I've talked about how the South ceases to be segregationists, um, I, you know, and the labor unions' peak membership in 1955, the political bosses uh, after 1968 are not really a major factor in the Democratic Party. And um, so these uh, people or their offspring um, basically say, gee, I'm actually more of a Democrat than a Republican. So the historical forces at some point become less relevant than other issues. And so uh, we've got that sorting, you know, around that 1950 period, you had the Major political scientist, E.E. Schatzneider, the American Political Science Association, says that we, it has all these, um, sets up committees to urge that we have a clearly liberal and a clearly conservative party, that that would be much better than having parties of mixed ideology. Give the voters a clear choice, they said. Well, their, you know, their prayers have been answered. They have that now. What do we hear from political scientists? Well, they don't. like call this polarization and uh, party ideology? And you know? How can we bring back the good old days of liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats? Well, we'll see how as issues change and so forth. Uh, we'll see how things pan out. I mean, in fact, we have been living since the 1990s in a period of very little political uh, change among uh, people, very marginal change. Um, you know, the, the the election in 2000, 2004, 2008, which swings somewhat towards the Democrats, 2012, um, uh, um, all look pretty much the same. And, you know, the easy way to predict how many state will vote is just predict it'll vote the same way it did last time. You're going to win money on that. Um, the, uh, 2016, we obviously have some changes. They're not huge in terms of number of total votes switched or the number of votes as a percentage of the national total. Um, They are enough to change the result from the expected win for Hillary Clinton to a win for Donald Trump. Uh, And we see particularly white non-college grads in the Midwest and Pennsylvania and in Florida, which is full of people from the Midwest and Pennsylvania and other places in the Northeast Um, and, and so forth. We see some change among that group. It's not as big as the change between, say, the 1976 election where you got your start political operative in 1980, four years later not to mention 1984 where you get a huge uh change and so forth. This um those were bigger changes than we've seen more recently. Um but you know the parties are still fighting it out and you hear that you know that the Trump Republican Party is talking about trying to win more votes among black voters and hispanic voters, particularly young men who um you know don't favor uh, the sort of big government programs and so forth and have perhaps much the same outlook as white non-college young, uh, young men who were white non-college who had gone, you know, trended towards Trump. Um, that's, uh, we'll see that works. The networks, uh, and you know, the Democrats making gains, among high income people, the white college grads, uh, some people would say they're indoctrinated by the left wing faculty, whatever, that um, there clearly there's been a move in that direction. It's been kind of slow and glacial in starting in the 1990s and then it's speeded up in the 2016 election, and uh, particularly in the 2018 election, where these white college grad uh, women in particular, but men also in affluent suburbs, could cast their vote to at least limit President Trump and his party uh, by giving the Democrats a majority in the House. Uh, We'll see if they continue to feel that way uh, when they're voting, not just for the House, but for the President and both houses of Congress.
0: You know, uh, the uh, I, I think it's really CNN that, uh, at least as I remember, came up with the uh, the map uh, red and blue as we know it now, and it pretty much gets reduced to that. And, and that often, I think, uh, sets up a, a false expectation. Sometimes <laughs> elections don't turn out that way. I'm talking about presidential elections. But early on, reading, uh, as I said, starting as a teenager, The Almanac of American Politics, you kind of uh, trained uh, you, you trained me to think of the House of Representatives, and of course, with an electoral college, uh, all the states being equal with the credit for two senators, but then when you add in the House, district by district, that that's still where elections are won.
1: Yeah, it's still where elections are won, and you know we've seen a different pattern from when I started writing that almanac book. Then you had split tick people split their tickets in the yeah. South in particular, but many places outside the South as well. Um, today you have basically straight ticket voting. Uh you know, with two thousand twelve I think we saw a record number of state straight tickets in other words, you know, every district that Mitt Romney carried almost elected a Republican congressman every uh, this district that Barack Obama carried elected a Democratic congressman. There were only about 30 members of the 435-member House that were out of line with their party uh, talk. If you go back to, say, 1972 when President Nixon is re-elected over George McGovern, uh, you've got... Uh, McGovern carries only 89 districts, yeah. but the Democrats end up with a majority in Congress. The, uh, the other um, four... Um, the 300 and some districts that McGovern uh, didn't carry uh, split evenly between Republicans and Democrats. In other words, half the Nixon districts voted for a Democrat for Congress. Um, yep, not anymore. anymore. Not
0: anymore. I, I want to test a thesis with you, uh, maybe a couple of them in the time we have. One of them is that... Uh, the, the the basic polarization is the fact that given the cultural issues you're talking about, which are which are inseparable in one sense from the political, social and economic issues. Yeah. The parties are, are now sorting themselves out according to a basic logic. I mean, it, 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 it's 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 I can't imagine there are too many people who are politically aware who spend any time trying to figure out if they're Republicans or Democrats. It's it, it, it's it's now pretty much a sorted nation. Uh, that is S.O.R.T.E. did <laughs> T-E-D, not sorted, yes. but sorted. And uh, I, I think it's going to remain that way from what I can tell.
1: Well, you know, it, it, you have you know an issue like the abortion issue. When that first emerged after Roe v. Wade came down in 1973, we'd had a series of abortion liberalization laws in the states in the five years preceding Roe v. Wade that affected a third of the country. Um, But nonetheless, it nationalized the issue, one size fits all, and so forth. Um, You you know, those issues split the parties down the middle, the abortion issue. There were lots of uh, pro-life Democrats, lots of pro-choice Republicans, um, and so forth. By the 1990s, you've got those pretty much um, shifted. The the Democratic Party is pretty clearly the pro-abortion rights party. Uh, to use terminology, people with that view tend to hold. I can remember ascending with the late columnist Bob Novak up to see uh, in the high reaches of the uh, uh, up towards the bleacher seats in the hall, convention hall to find Pennsylvania Governor Bob Casey, who uh, a pro-life uh, uh, anti-abortion right. rights can, uh, governor of one of the nation's largest states, who was denied a speaking spot at the convention. He couldn't speak because he was uh, against uh, legalizing abortions um we had uh, you know uh, and the 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 republican party was pretty much a, a party of, uh, of, of against um, that wanted to you know, legalize abortions or to you know reduce or place re- greater restrictions on abortion and that's continued to this day other cultural issues come along and um Kind of split the party's constituencies, but they don't totally reform them. The same sex marriage uh, issue, which had minimal support uh, in the mid 1990s and now is a majority position in the country, um, you know, that was supported more by Democrats than Republicans, but the first national uh, political office holder who supported it was Vice President Dick Cheney.
0: Quiet, um, well, before yeah. president,
1: yeah. quietly, but yeah. he did. And, uh, you know, that was so that's um, that that issue does not split along party lines. But the cultural issues are important to people. I can remember a lot of politicians saying, well, you know, liberal politicians saying, well, we're voting to give these uh, poor people more money or programs that are going to put line that, you know, get put money in their pockets. Why are they going off on an irrelevancy like abortion? Um, and of course, the answer to that is uh, your own rich constituents, who will pay higher taxes if your party wins, nonetheless support it because of their views on abortion. That's right. Those, there are issues. There are issues which, you know, which have moral content which relate Absolutely. to the moral values by which people lead or try to lead their lives. People be- believe people should lead their lives that are very important to people. And when you bring those into politics, when you make them a one size fits all issue nationally, as the Roe v. Wade decision did on abortion, uh, people are going uh, to vote their views on those issues. And those issues are going to be more important to many people than the issues that you wish were important. Cause they would have them you know, they they right. vote your way then. Um and that's uh that's simply um you know in some ways that's really a recognition that we have always been a culturally diverse country, religiously diverse, uh, regionally diverse, uh diverse into is in some aspects of our moral values. We've uh, been economically diverse and so forth, and that uh, that continues to this day yeah. um, and it's one of the things that uh, you know it in a way it is a sort of miracle that we were able to come up with two political parties which were both able capable of winning national majorities and of pleasing a majority of voters. Yeah. Um, that's not necessarily true in other political systems. And, um, you can have a political system that can produce, you know, uh, election results, which a large majority consider absolutely unacceptable. And then you have real problems.
0: Yeah, I, ha- I have another theory I want to test with you. And that is that, uh, that conservatives in general, and clearly I am one, uh, and Republicans specifically, are more ideologically forgiving uh, than is the cultural left. And I, I think that's true across societies. I mean, you can see it in the, uh, in, in the, the 1968 revolutions in, uh, in Europe and uh, the development of the left. So, for instance, it's, it's imaginable. Uh, in fact, it's real. The Republicans nominated Donald Trump to be president of the United States. And even on the abortion issue, which is a sine qua non, uh, for uh, for for Democrats and particularly for conservative Christians, uh, here you have someone that as recently as 2009 had articulated a basically pro-choice position to use the language he used, uh, but uh, but clearly is now uh, eagerly embraced by the the pro-life movement and pro-life voters. But meanwhile, I'm watching what goes on on the left, and uh, uh, on the left, it's almost as if you have to have been born as an adult in 2020 with no past, uh, if you're going to be able to pass the litmus test, always moving leftward now of the Democratic Party. So I take as axiomatically true what you say about the two parties with the Republicans thinking of themselves as representing the average American, a typical American, and the Democrats uh, thinking of themselves as as interest groups who uh, coalesce together. But they're going to have a real hard time holding together.
1: Well, I think they, you know, they are going to have a hard time holding together and we're seeing some of that work out right now. You have, um, you know, you have these uh, interest groups competing with each other and you have, uh, you know, we we now hear, you know, the transgender rights has been one of the great causes that has been asserted by the cultural left over recent years. Um, they're coming up against some feminists on the issue of um you know, high school athletics, Inevitably. college athletics, yep. should uh, should persons uh, born as male with male body characteristics be able to compete in women's sports? Uh, well, State of Connecticut says they can, and you got a couple of these individuals who are winning all the races and the young women who have been training for a long time and who have been, um, you know, working to Um, achieve a form of excellence um, are not getting their championships. Um,
0: Or their scholarships.
1: uh, Yeah. So, you know, that's, uh, yeah, a little bit, but I think, you know, in some ways the honor is more important than the money to these individuals. Um,
0: You know, they've worked for some. Sure. Martina Navarrova is making the same case in professional athletics.
1: Yeah. So there's a certain amount of that. I do think, my view is that you tend to get more tolerance on the, uh, on the cultural right. I know many people on the cultural left would disagree with that, uh, say, you know, we're basically tolerant. Of course, you have to go along with our program completely, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so forth. And, um, well, you know, this is uh, this is part of our politics, and I think, you know, one of the problems for the Democratic Party, I think, has been this sort of uh, an assumption that many on the political left have: let's have no enemies on the left. Well, you end up getting yourself uh, in bed with, or at least in a political coalition with, uh, some people who have ideas that just don't, uh, you know, re- uh, hack it politically that repel a majority of people so you've got you know that you've got democrats coming out against uh, that we're going to decriminalize border illegal border crossing uh we're going to do things of that nature which i think are you know they're bidding for support from certain vocal groups or people who claim to be representative of an important part of the democrats voting constituency or potential constituency but who are you know making demands that really go beyond what a majority of the voters can go along with. And we've seen that on the abortion issue when you've got the state of New York uh, passing and Democratic legislators in Virginia at least considering uh, legalizing abortions up to the moment of birth, ninth-month abortions.
0: New York has done it.
1: New York has done it. Do we want a ninth-month abortion? You, you know, do we have... Uh, one hospital, you've got people spending extraordinary effort in high-tech, keeping alive a premature baby of, you know, the weighs so just a couple pounds and so forth. And then uh, at another site not far away, um, you're taking such a baby or one that's you know, plainly viable and um, killing them. Uh, is that acceptable practice? Well, um I think there's a potential vulnerability there. Most of the standard traditional press will not press this issue because most of them are abortion rights advocates. Absolutely. I think I think ninth month abortion is not a winning platform nationally unless you can obscure what you're actually for.
0: Well, well said there. Uh, I want to make one uh, pushback, just a little bit, on something you said, just as a matter of record. Uh, okay. I, I, yeah, When you were talking about the difference between the abortion issue and its salience uh, in the parties versus uh, something like the uh, same-sex marriage. And, and here I'll say, I think you're yeah. right to a certain extent, but where, uh, where, where the great division is enduring is over religious liberty issues in conflict with uh, the, the regime of same-sex marriage.
1: Well, that's right. Are are we going to force uh, churches to uh,
0: conduct same-sex marriage
1: ceremonies? Well, that goes against the free exercise of religion.
0: Yeah. Or are we going to strip uh, uh, recognition of of Christian colleges and universities?
1: Well, that's the argument that the person who cost the Democrats the 2016 presidential election was Donald. Verrilli.
0: Absolutely. Solicitor Solicitor General.
1: Yep. General, the solicitor John Abel Able lawyer in the Obama administration, and when they were, uh, the Obama administration was arguing for what became the result of the Obergefell decision legalizing same-sex marriage everywhere, um, he was asked by Justice Alito, um, would, does this mean that uh, you would uh, withdraw uh, tax exemption from churches that don't recognize this, and there's precedent going back to segregation and interracial dating issues in the early 1980s that the justice was referring to. And Donald Verley said, well, that's an issue we'll have to look at down the road.
0: Yeah, his his exact quote was, it will be an issue, which was astoundingly candid. It will be an issue.
1: It will be an issue. And that is, uh, and so many people can imagine that uh, uh, plausibly that their church will lose its tax exemption and may have to go out of existence, uh, because, uh, it won't perform same sex marriages. Well, gosh, um, you know, uh, I, I take counsel on this one from Andrew Sullivan, uh, who was one of the first, uh, advocates yes. of same sex marriage back 30 some years ago. and Jonathan Rauch, they're both friends of mine. Uh, and they basically say, you know what, uh, we shouldn't be trying to make everybody accept same-sex marriages, conduct them, and so forth. Um, we, we should, we should leave—people uh, want to have churches that don't accept this. That's fine. They should have a nice day uh, and so forth. Uh, and I think that's in line with what has been, I think, the prevailing spirit of religious freedom and religious tolerance in this country. Uh, but you have some people that, you know, really want to press this, and they're going to sue the florist who won't provide flowers for a same-sex marriage, when my experience, at least, is that it's not difficult to find a florist who will will provide flowers for a same-sex marriage. Uh,
0: You've been generous with your time. I want to ask you about one final dichotomy that you write about. And this was really a book uh, s- several years ago, I guess, 15 years ago now, Hard America, Soft America. And, uh, you know, I I, I I traffic in collecting uh, these kinds of uh, dichotomies, polarizations. Uh, I, I, at the very same time you wrote your book, John Sperling said that America's uh, divided between the metro and the retro regions. Well, that was a put down to rural America. But uh, but you know, you're talking about hard and soft. Will you play that out just a little bit? Because I, I think you were right then. I, I think you're just as right now. Well,
1: hard, hard America, I said, is the parts of American life where you have accountability and uh, and, and 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 standards and accountability. And um, soft America is where you don't. And uh, basically, I said. Uh, one of the things we see, well, why does America have incompetent 18-year-olds and competent 30-year-olds? And the answer is for 12 years in our uh, most of our schools, they're kind of soft America. They really don't have much uh, uh, accountability uh, and competition and accountability. Um, and, you know, everybody gets a medal for pet, pa- you know, everybody passes all that stuff and we don't really care if people learn things. Um, and, you know, from ages 18 to 30, people are in competitive colleges. People are in, uh, vocational training. People are in the military. People are in a variety of things where they're in hard America, where there is competition and accountability and people keeping track and, that elicits more, um, you know, more performance, more competence, more uh, skills, more creativity uh, from people. Uh, You you know, ultimately, you don't want a country that's all um, hard or all soft. Uh, All soft breeds incompetence and and inability to defend itself. All hard imposes too many standards on people with different stages of their lives. We don't expect Marine Corps boot camp standards for kindergartners um, and so forth. Uh, But we also want, uh, we want to have uh, achievement and standards and uh, accountability and parts of America that work, some of which you wouldn't, you know, um, special Olympics is hard America. You have to do certain things. The contestants do certain things yeah. uh, before they get a prize. They have to accomplish something that represents a challenge to them. And uh, that's, uh, that's part of Hard America, and it's one of the reasons it's been an institution that works pretty well. And as I say, a lot of our schools have been too much soft America. And leaving kids, leaving young people short of the talents, abilities, Work habits that would serve them well as young adults.
0: Michael Barone, I knew this would be a fascinating conversation. It has not disappointed. I want to thank you for joining me today for thinking in public.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for reading my books.
0: Thanks for listening to Thinking in Public. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll find more than 100 more of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.